It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Technological innovation has opened up opportunities for medical treatment that most of us couldn't have imagined even just a few decades ago. But as medical devices get more sophisticated and the internet connects almost everything in our lives, the threats become more complex too. Cybersecurity is patient safety. If you do not have a cybersecure device, you do not have a safe device. Therefore, cybersecurity is a responsibility. It's, you are regulated to have good cybersecurity in your device already. When it comes to life-saving devices implanted in our bodies, there's no margin for error. Cybersecurity threats are constantly evolving, though, and bad actors are no longer loose groups of rogue hackers. They're state-sanctioned experts with resources. How do you design medical technology to withstand attacks that haven't happened yet and might be beyond comprehension? And what are the consequences of failure? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. Jessica Wilkerson is a cybersecurity expert working on medical device issues for the FDA. She joins Kevin Fu, an electrical engineering professor who researches device vulnerabilities, for a conversation about what could go wrong with poor design and what it takes to ensure sufficient oversight for device cybersecurity. The talk is moderated by Vivian Schiller, the executive director of Aspen Digital. Here's Schiller. So, Kevin, I'm going to start with you. Just set the stage for us. What is the current cyber threat when it comes to healthcare? Well, um, so thanks for having me, Vivian. Uh, I would say the, the current cyber threat for, and this is for medical devices as opposed to information, which has slightly different characteristics. Right. Um, I would say the, 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 the main threat uh, issue to talk about there is uh, safety and effectiveness at, at the forefront, but availability and integrity of these devices to deliver the therapeutics and the diagnostics. And then in terms of the threat, it's it's no longer kids in their basement, you know, hackers and hoodies. That, that was a very 1990s sort of mentality. Uh, today, it's uh, nation states, uh, organized crime backed by nation states. And so it's, it's a very different world now uh, of, of organizations that are trying to cause harm, not just accidentally causing harm. Yeah, and I want to get into in a minute what what might be those motivations and how this has changed from the mischief makers of the, you know, of the apocryphal uh, kids in the basement with the hoodies. But, but Jessica, I want to turn to you first and talk about how these kind of threats that we're talking about just at a high level, how do they specifically impact medical devices? Sure, and uh, I will definitely get to that. There's one thing that I wanted to hit on, though, building a little bit on what Kevin had said. So one thing that we talk about within FDA quite a bit there's a lot of focus on intentional attacks on medical devices or on the healthcare system. You know, there's going to be an actor behind it. Somebody is doing something. One of the things that we talk about is sometimes with, with digital technologies, things just go wrong. Your, your sure. phone randomly stops working. The update uh, causes your device to, to turn off and you can't get it to turn back on. And so one of the things that we try to make sure that medical device manufacturers and others are focusing on is you have to design for that too. It's not just waiting around for this mysterious hacker to come along and try and do something to your device. Your device has to be able to stand up to just almost randomness of of the way that our digital system works, the noise that you're going to see. It has to be able to act and continue to deliver, to Kevin's point, safe and effective care in the face of that. And you would be surprised 
how difficult that is. Um, but in terms of the threats and how it can actually manifest within a medical device or a system, obviously you mentioned Homeland, and that became the bane of my existence. I'm sure. Sorry to bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was actually with the Energy and Commerce Committee when that first came out, and I had become sort of the medical device cybersecurity person uh, when that happened, and I was getting called to congresspersons' <laughs> offices because they're like, We're, we really need you to explain to us, is this possible, and what are we doing about it? I was like, oh, God. Yeah. Um, um, but I will I will put it this way. You know, it, could a Homeland scenario as situation actually happen? Kevin's research actually proved that in certain circumstances uh, it, it could. What we see more often, and, and you had brought up ransomware, of course, is that medical devices are really no longer just the devices themselves. They're part of systems. So the device may be the thing that is operating to deliver care, but it's calculating the dosages in the yeah. cloud. And it is doing something within the hospital network. It's pulling information on the patient from the electronic health record. It's doing all of these things. And so really, it's the systematic part of the device that's important. And what happens in systems when you have ransomware, or when you just have some kind of issue, the, the email system goes down, the EHR system has a, has a blip, whatever it is, and the medical device can no longer access those other parts of the system, then you have the availability issue that Kevin was mentioning. The device is fine. The device has not been hacked. No one there is there. There's no actor sitting there attempting to cause damage to the person, but the device cannot be used. And we saw this happen, actually. The, the first confirmed case that we have, you know, we get asked all the time, and, and it comes up quite often, um, that we have never seen confirmed instances of uh, cybersecurity incidents causing patient harm. That's not true. We have, because we've seen these medical device manufacturers, we've seen these hospitals get hit with ransomware, and when that happens, when the devices no longer became av become available, you have a delay in treatment. And I'm, I am not a medical professional by any stretch of the imagination, but the people that I work with are, and the people that we talk to are, and what they say is delay in treatment, even by minutes, by hours, by days, by weeks, can affect a patient's recovery, can affect that patient's ability to actually fight whatever it is that they're fighting. And so when we have these delays, you are seeing patient harm, and that's what we are really focusing on, is that inability of the devices to actually do what they are designed to do. So what, so, I, so what you're saying is, it may not be possible. By the way, I should explain for those of you that have not seen this Homeland scene, because <laughs> we talk about it. The bad guy was kind of the bad guy and the good guy at the same time. It's all very confusing if you if you watch it. But he, they were, they hacked. Was it the vice I president? Think the vice president. <laughs> I think the vice president pacemaker, causing him to have a heart attack and die. Anyway, that's what we're talking about. So even if we say that kind of thing hasn't happened, although I want to do want to follow up and ask if it's possible because. But it's not necessary to hack the device because if you can hack the cloud-based uh, system which is providing the information um, to that device, that's good enough. Mm -hmm. And have we seen those kind of attacks? Yes, yeah. we did. So yep. it's effectively the same thing even if it's not quite as you know, Hollywood ready. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the other important point you make, of course, is uh, your first point, which is... Uh, you know, forget about bad actors, forget about cybersecurity. I mean, it's technology, and technology goes wrong, too. So, um, so you know, it's just layer, layer of mm -hmm. risk. But also, obviously, great opportunity. Yes, yes. So, um, so let's talk about, um, so talk a little bit about um, who are behind, let's come back to the attackers. Who are these attackers, and, and what are their motivations? It may not be mischief makers, but we talk about nation states, 
is the motive? Well, I'll just let you answer question. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, and uh, first of all, following up on the on the homeland, it was yeah. uh, kind of interesting because uh, I, I saw that episode, and then I noticed that the the uh, the showrunner said they they used our research paper as their plot line because we had shown how to create a wireless <laughs> transmitter to uh, induce ventricular fibrillation, but the, the show actually made it look a little more dramatic. There actually was no pin uh, in the real world, but uh, so it's, but that would have been a less fun drama. But um, the so getting sorted to the to the who are who are these threat actors and, and what are some of the motivations? It's it's become much more economic uh, as far as I can tell. So um, we've the, the R word has already been stated ransomware, uh, and in my view, ransomware is more of a symptom than the problem. Uh, but but it's out there and it's infecting all sorts of institutions, uh, especially healthcare uh, and power grid and things of that nature. Um, but. Uh, uh, the, the, the groups who run these ransomware gangs are sophisticated. I mean, if you want to hire someone with great tech support, go to a ransomware yeah. organized crime. They have excellent technical support. They will get you the bitcoins yeah. uh, <laughs> to pay the ransom. Uh, so these are extremely sophisticated, organized uh, 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 criminals uh, that are economically motivated and often have ties to sort of political uh, uh, agendas sometimes, um, but uh, like all organizations, there's um, uh, politics. Uh, so that's what we're, that is sort of a driving force right now. But I, I think it's also important not to focus entirely on what's happening in the last five minutes, but what's going to be happening in the next five to ten years. And I, I think it's really important to to bake in, build in security by design rather than sort of bolting it on after the fact. And that means sort of a pre-market approach in FDA parlance, uh, making sure that there's good security engineering built in. Uh, and then you won't have to worry about ransomware or ransomware 5.0 or whatever's coming along next. So talk a little bit about um, the security by design. So what, what is it that needs to happen? And, and how does that work exactly in layman's terms? Sure. So in layman's terms, um, uh, sec- security by design uh, uh, means that you are being very deliberate about what choices you're making in how to protect yourself. So instead of just you know buying every security device you hear about, you buy the ones that are linked to a specific risk you're trying to mitigate. Uh, so for instance, uh, if you're uh, trying to protect uh, the availability uh, of a medical device, then you're going to want to focus on making sure that if any one component goes down or becomes unavailable, the essential cl- clinical functions can still work. The pacemaker continues to run even if the network is lost. Uh, and I know this is possible to do. I teach my students how to do this. It's quite feasible if you do it by design. Uh, but if you don't build it into your early design, it's, it's very hard after the fact. You're not going to get a high-performance car uh, you know, after buying uh, you know, a, a Yugo or something like that. You can't retrofit this. Um, so it, it needs to be built in by design. But I would say the, um, the number one thing uh, that I, th- I think a layperson could appreciate is this thing called threat modeling. Uh, it's something um, most of the industry and FDA uh, recommends, and that's all about identifying the risk as a designer. If you're a manufacturer, identifying those risks, you can choose to accept those risks, but to make sure that those risks get out in print so that you can be more deliberate about mitigating those risks is, is what I would call sort of step zero uh, before you get to any magic technology that you might use to control those risks. So if I can, if I can there's a couple of points that I wanted to follow up on, and then I, can, I think I can give a concrete example about this security by design bit, but I want to actually go back a little bit earlier. We've talked a lot about the attackers and how the attackers are driving uh, a lot of the work in the cybersecurity space. The group that we haven't, and that FDA in particular tries to recognize because it has driven so 
so much of FDA's work are the, the allies that we have in the security research community. And actually, Kevin is actually part of this. Um, but, you know, so many, so much of the time in cybersecurity, and we may discuss this a little bit later, um, we, we're, we're waiting for the attack to happen and then responding. We're not reacting proactively. And what security researchers in the medical device space have been able to help medical device manufacturers and the FDA do is they will go take a device, they will research it, they will find a vulnerability that exists before anybody else, before an attacker, before whoever finds it, and they'll go tell the company. They'll tell FDA, here's an issue that needs fixing. And in that way, we've really been able to protect patient safety uh, without risking it, without waiting for somebody to actually come along and exploit it. And so I do think at the same time, to your point, you know, there is optimism here. And I, and I think recognizing the security research community and, and how they act as allies in the face of these attackers is very important. Um, on the secure by design example, and actually this, this ties it together because... Um, very soon when I joined FDA, about five weeks after I joined FDA, pandemic is just getting started. We don't know it's a pandemic at this point, but my bosses are starting to get pulled in. We get told by, uh, actually by the press, we didn't even, the security researchers, bless their hearts, uh, had told one group of, of folks, but not our group of folks, um, that there was a major cybersecurity vulnerability in Bluetooth. And Bluetooth, for its fancy name, is it, you, I, you probably know it. It's on your phones. But it's essentially a way for everybody, to, devices to communicate as long as they're close enough. Um, many medical devices use Bluetooth. And we find out, my fifth week at FDA, we find out major cybersecurity vulnerabilities in Bluetooth that could have actually put patient safety at risk. You could have bypassed the security controls on the device. You could have crashed the device. You could deadlock it, which goes back to that availability issue of devices isn't going to be able to deliver treatment. Um, and so we, we scrambled, you know, and, and you can actually go, you can look at the FDA website. There's what's known as a safety communication that was put out on this issue to essentially say patients, clinicians, others, be aware this is an issue and you need to do whatever it was to fix it. Um, but by the secure by design issue, there was one medical device manufacturer that we were working with at that time, um, and they had Bluetooth in their products, and so we were, we were talking to them to see what they thought the risk was, and they essentially said, look, we've designed our devices such that the Bluetooth ability is untrusted. The Bluetooth, thing, it, it can't do anything that would put patient safety at risk because we deliberately designed it to be almost quarantined. So yes, the Bluetooth in the, in the device is vulnerable, but there is no patient safety risk because of the way that we designed it. And so that's the kind of, that's the threat modeling issue that, that Kevin brought up. That's what we're looking for. Right. So every security team needs to have former hackers on their team to find the vulnerability. Couldn't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so whose responsibility is security by design? I mean... It sounds like what you're talking about is this, this it's the manufacturers. I, I mean, at the end of the day, the manufacturer is the one creating the device, and so there's no one else more empowered to build security in. Uh, and in the computer security research community, we often call this uh, an, uh, an externality uh, in, in other markets outside of medical devices because normally in a market, say automobiles or um, IoT devices, uh, you'll find the entity who most wants the security property has the least sort of capability to do it. The consumer has the least capability, or in this case, the, the patient sort of has the least direct influence. Uh, but uh, for a medical device, certainly it's the, the medical device manufacturer who has the most capability uh, to build in that uh, by design, but of course, working with the stakeholders, um, yeah. collaborative. Well, and, and as the 
the FDA. (laughs) It is absolutely the medical device manufacturer's responsibility. Um, And so, you know, we we recently actually, if anyone really needs a sleep aid, we uh, we just put out a 49-page guidance that essentially says, here's our regulations. Here's all the cybersecurity realities of designing a medical device. Here's how you, we recommend you stick them together. And one thing that, um, you know, if you, if you go sort of through the history of that document and how it's evolved, the, the one thing we did in this document that we hadn't done as explicitly beforehand is essentially say, you as a medical device manufacturer are required by law to have a safe and effective device. Cybersecurity is patient safety. If you do not have a cybersecure device, you do not have a safe device. Therefore, cybersecurity is a responsibility. It's, you are regulated to have good cybersecurity in your device already. Uh, and so that's, that's been our approach. That's been our interpretation. And so, so how far does your jurisdiction go? Can you, I mean, you're looking at all these devices, obviously. You're looking at what the vulnerabilities are. Can you find them? Can you let, I mean, what's the, what, what kind of, what kind of uh, instruments do you have? Sure. So we're getting a little bit outside of my lane. Usually I have uh, just a fantastic uh, person who helps out on this. He, he's a... Uh, uh one of our leads for this kind of issue, but I I will do my best. And Matt, I apologize in advance if I get anything wrong. Um, But so the FDA has a number of tools just as a a rule, as an agency. And so uh, Kevin had mentioned pre-market. So by law in the United States, most medical devices, especially if they involve advanced digital components, have to go through pre-market approval. So before you can ever sell the device, before the device can ever reach a patient, the FDA essentially has to say, yep, You've, you've proven that this is safe, you've proven that this is effective, go forth and sell. Uh, and so what has developed over time is FDA now has a group of reviewers who specialize in cybersecurity reviews. Uh, and they will take submissions from the medical device manufacturers, they will look at the documentation, and they will determine whether or not the, the cybersecurity makes the device safe and effective. And not just when the submission comes in, but over what we call the total product lifecycle of the device. So to your point, if there's no vulnerability at point A, but three months from now or three years from now there is a vulnerability, the medical device manufacturer is still required to address the cybersecurity issue in that device. Um, and so that's on the pre-market side. And then on the post-market side, once the device is actually in hospitals, in patients' homes, and so on, there are also uh, requirements that it remains safe and effective over time. And so if there are issues, you can, again, there's a, there's a brilliant cybersecurity page on FDA.com. Gov, um, you can see that we've taken enforcement actions against uh, medical device manufacturers for cybersecurity issues. We've worked with them on, on voluntary recalls to address issues. And so FDA has brought to bear all of its traditional regulatory enforcement tools to address cybersecurity concerns for patient safety. Yeah. And how's it going from your perspective, Kevin? How's the adoption? It's gotten better over the last 15 <laughs> years. Uh, I mean, a butt coming. 51% is passing, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, I would, it's far from universal, but um, let, me, let me give a slight counterexample to this is how you do it right, but maybe it'd be useful to hear about how you do it wrong. Yes, it would. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I know many of my colleagues at FDA, and I've heard examples of this from, I'm sure they're well-meaning manufacturers, but uh, to the effect of, well, this device will be perfectly secure as long as it gets put on a secure hospital network. And uh, every, uh, any HD, any health delivery organization in the room is probably kind of doing this right now. Like, yeah. what did you just say? <laughs> um, 
And, uh, but that's a common refrain. You think, well, to keep this secure, you have to put it on a secure hospital network. And my response is, there's no such thing as a secure hospital network. You can't just give up your security responsibility entirely uh, to, to another uh, uh, stakeholder. Uh, and in fact, I would claim that you need to make sure that device can work on a hostile network because all networks are hostile really by design. Uh, networks were never meant to be trusted. Um, the equivalent to the automotive would be something like an automotive car company saying, well, this is safe as long as you drive it on a crash-proof road. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, That does not exist in a hospital. So there are ways to do this. Uh, it has to be done deliberately. There are some very special engineering techniques I won't get into to, to solve it. It is possible, but you, you have to choose to do it. Yeah. So we've talked about the responsibility of the manufacturers. We've talked about the, the role of the, of, of the FDA specifically in terms of enforcement. Coming back to the healthcare facilities, what can healthcare facilities do to keep themselves safe? We underst- understand your point that no network is safe. And yet, you know, <laughs> and yet they, they certainly are not, I, I assume, should not just have their arms crossed going, hey, it's with the device manufacturers. So... Oh, I think she's looking at you, Jessica. <laughs> I can take it. I can take it. Um, no, there, there are a lot of things that, uh, that they can do. And, and at FDA, we talk about cybersecurity as a shared responsibility. So we, of course, are, are trying to do our best, and we are, are pushing the, the device manufacturers and, and many who are, who are, are coming along with us. Um, to, to do their part, but the healthcare delivery organizations do also have to have to take certain steps, um, and so there's there's one in particular that I'll come back to that is a is a particular um, I don't know if favorite is the right word, but I've been working on it for about six years now. Um, but you know the, the the other thing that we look at is you know. <laughs> Flat networks uh, to, to to go for to an engineering term are are not good. So if you this is like in your house, your house is a flat network, almost almost guaranteed. You have you just connect everything to that one router. Everything could in theory talk to everything else if they were designed to, and so on. Which in your house is fine. I don't I don't really think that you know your your toaster is attempting to hack your computer. Um, but in a in a hospital, that's a problem because the computers that the nurses and the other um, clinicians are using to potentially go on the internet and look up information on uh, on issues that they need to address shouldn't necessarily be able to talk to the drug infusion pumps that are <laughs> delivering care to the patient. Yeah. But in a lot of times, they are designed in that way. Everything can connect to everything else. And this is, again, it's a, it's a very outdated attitude of, I will set up this moat in front of my system, the firewall. We're going to have the firewall around our stuff, and then everything inside our stuff is safe because nothing will ever get past the firewall, which, of course, is completely untrue. Um, and so there are, there's a lot of updates that are going on. There's a lot of best practices development about how hospitals can segment their network so that the, the safety-critical things are quarantined away from the computers uh, and all of these kinds of things. And then there's other various issues that they can take. Keeping things up to date, one of the biggest issues, one of the hardest, um, but it, that's another big one. And then my, uh, my favorite is uh, something called Software Bill of Materials, which is an ex- incredibly fancy but really fun acronym to say, uh, SBOM, it sounds like a swearing, um, where it's essentially software supply chain transparency. So what, what we uh, have been talking with a lot of device manufacturers, it's in our guidance, it exists as a, as a best practice now, is um, using software supply chain transparency data to purchase things. 
So essentially, before you buy something, you give the you get the manufacturer to give you a list of what that device contains from a software perspective. And if it's not good enough, which in a lot of cases it's not, because they're using software that's 10, 15 years old and has never been updated, or things that have tens to thousands of vulnerabilities, and you they can essentially say, I'm not buying this, I'm not putting this on my network. And that's one of the, the most effective ways that we've seen it. And of course, a lot of these devices and manufacturers are outside the United States, where outside of your jurisdiction, although as soon as they come into the country, they're... <laughs> Yeah, that one I'm going to have to defer on only okay. because I can see an FDA lawyer in, in the okay. background. Uh, and I am just not familiar enough. I think it's more complicated, but... Okay, okay. all right. We'll hold that for, yes. the, for, the, for the next panel of, of FDA lawyers. Yes. Um, okay, so we've talked about a little bit about the uh, device manufacturers. We've talked about the, the, the roles and responsibilities of the healthcare facilities, although, Kevin, you might have some more to add there. We haven't talked about the patient. <laughs> we haven't talked about us. What can we do as individuals, um, because we are all patients, um, either have been, are now, or will be, to keep ourselves secure as possible? Well, Kevin, I'm looking at you. <laughs> so, uh, 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 you know, as you say, we're all patients. Um, I think... Uh, at least from my point of view, as with my academic hat as a professor, I, I want to make sure that my students, who are going to be the future engineers of these systems, truly understand and can, can sort of be in the shoes of a patient. Uh, I, I've talked with so many manufacturers uh, where I'll be doing training for engineers, and they have perhaps never been inside a hospital. Uh, and so, for instance, uh, this is not a this is not the a panacea. This is not um, solving the problem. But uh, I think it's just really important uh, that uh, the engineers, the students who are going to be creating these devices, spend a lot of time with patients, uh, spend time in the clinical setting. Uh, we learn so much just things that you wouldn't learn from reading a book. Uh, and so this is sort of the professor had thinking. It, 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 of course, it goes much, much deeper than that. Um, at the end of the day, it's about um, uh, you know, listening to the patient and um, uh, making sure that these devices remain safe and effective. Uh, but, it, of course, it goes well beyond sort of the academic world of creating engineers and, and the human element. Yeah, I, I think this, this, one's a, this one's hard, right? Because I, earlier I had just said we view cybersecurity as a shared responsibility, and it absolutely is. But we also have to be realistic of the relative capabilities of each group. So obviously the medical device manufacturer is the one who has the most control over the secure by design of their devices or not. And then you have the, the hospitals, the clinicians and others who will understand how the device operates better. They've, they've even got a little bit more power. The patients, it's hard. And it's also, in our view, not great practice to put cybersecurity concerns onto the patients. That being said, um, FDA did actually produce a video, um, I think it was, it's been within the last year or so, on what patients can do to help be part of their own cybersecurity. And it's, it's things like being aware. You know, if, if you know you're going to get a device, well, one, if you're going to get a device, ask questions. Is this device going to be internet connected? Does this device have some kind of advanced digital capability that I should know about? And if it does, 
get more information on that. Talk to the talk to your clinician. Talk to the medical device manufacturer. In many cases, the device manufacturers have representatives whose job it is to give more information on these kinds of things. Uh, if there is an issue, tell your doctor immediately that there's an issue. Tell the me- medical device manufacturer immediately that there's an issue. Uh, and then for us, the other big one, you know, keep your devices up to date. If the if the medical device manufacturer releases an update, apply it. Um, but you know, we, we again, we we do go back to this realistic, realistically speaking, what the patients can and can't do, and it, it really comes down to we think that staying aware, staying an active part of their own care. Um, but making sure that the devices are designed in a way that makes it feasible for the patients to do that. Is there some kind of security by design sort of, you know, list of, you know, t- the, the best of the best, like a good housekeeping seal of approval for, 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 for devices, whether they meet your high standards? So while well, there is uh, the that draft... A, that a consumer could look up, yeah. Oh. Well, about the consumer, I was going to point to the draft guidance, mm-hmm. but uh, that's yeah. not really meant for the consumer audience. Yeah. Um, the, the, there is no checkbox yeah. type of uh, check, uh, any kind of checklist uh, for security that I think is, is meaningful uh, because it's so easy to check yes and then do it wrong. You know, did you install this? Well, that's great, but you can yeah. still do it wrong. Um, but the first thing I look at is, as a litmus test is, um, has the manufacturer done threat modeling? Um, are they transparent about um, how they're managing threats? I usually go to the manufacturer site and check. Do they, do they have a web page for security researchers on how to report a security vulnerability, yeah, right. or do they bury it? Um, so, um, it, it, uh, again, it's not a, an end-all, be-all just because they have a how to report a security problem. Problem, but it's a good sign that they, it means that they're welcoming it, they're encouraging people right. to report to them, uh, and it's more likely they're going to be a collaborative uh, partner on this on vulnerability disclosures, for instance, right. in, in the post-market. I see an opening here for somebody, a third-party, you know, independent entity to create sort of a, a ranking system for devices. So it's, it's so hard. We, we've heard this, and actually <laughs> medical device manufacturers in particular um, are very much like, just tell us what you want. Just, yeah. just tell us what it is you want from yeah. us to make a secure device, uh, and we we can't do it. It's because you know we we regulate everything from a smart thermometer to a surgery robot, yeah. and the cybersecurity requirements for those two things are going to be radically different. Um, and the other thing is the the idea of a of a consumer seal of approval. It's very attractive, but. It's very difficult to get right. It, it changes over time. What is, yeah. what is secure on day one is not secure on day 20 yeah. uh, and all of these things. But like Kevin said, you know, we, we look at medical device manufacturers who have what's known as coordinated vulnerability disclosure programs. Do they have that cybersecurity page that explains their devices? Do they have those kinds of things? For me, this is a little bit less of a consumer issue, but are they producing software supply chain transparency information and making that available? Um, and so it's, it's those kinds of practices. What I'm hearing is for the consumer, there's not actually much they can do other than trust. So we're going to move to questions in a couple of minutes, but I want to ask both of you, you, you've actually painted, you know, a a slightly, well, really a kind of a hopeful picture, you know, instituting security by design, the threat modeling, you know, the FDA actions. So let's just go dark for just a minute. (laughs) What, you know, it's the, it's the cliche question. What, what keeps you up at night? about these things. Um, what, is, what is the greatest risk you see sort of now and on into the future? Kevin. Well, I'll, I'm just going to return back to threat modeling and uh, good security engineering. Uh, there's, 
it keeps me up when I see an absence of that. Yeah. When, it, when I see a manufacturer or, or even a health delivery organization immediately go to, um, we're going to buy this solution or, or, you know, buy this magic widget, and I'll just back up and I'll say, well, but what's your threat model? How is that connected to the risks? If you haven't created a list of the risks you're trying to manage, how can you possibly solve that? And so it keeps me up knowing that there's some devices out there that haven't had thorough um, threat modeling uh, because I know then just by design, they're, they're not going to be able to resist not only today's threats, but tomorrow's threats. And, and then what is, the, what is the, stemming out of that, what is the risks to, to, to patients? Well, the, the big risk, uh, well, safety and effectiveness at yeah. the top, but yeah. availability, making sure that the, the, the device essential clinical functions are available when you need them, uh, and uh, the integrity of the diagnostics. Can you imagine somebody flipping a bit uh, on some kind of blood test or um, radiation therapy where it goes from uh, you know, needing the therapy to not, and then four years later you discover you know, disease. Uh, it's uh, flipping a bit. Uh, a single yes-no answer um, could be catastrophic. So that kind of information integrity, more, you know, in addition to the device integrity itself. Yes. Jessica? So um, I'm a, I am was actually remiss earlier when we were talking about threats. I should have mentioned, I'm not sure how many folks uh, are familiar with the 2017 WannaCry global yeah. outbreak of ransomware. That's my nightmare scenario, is, is that we have another one of those, and it hits the United States and spreads the way that it was intending to spread uh, before the, the very timely yet accidental intervention of a security researcher who managed to, to turn it off before it really started to affect the United States. But we, we have seen situations because the interconnectedness of these healthcare systems means that maybe they have 230 hospitals in the United States, 400 hospitals globally. They all use the same backend infrastructure. If, that, if they all get hit at the same time, they're all going. And one thing that we did experience during the pandemic is we were seeing ransomware incidents hit places that were already in COVID hotspots. And one very unlucky space had a potential issue where they were, they were staring down the barrel of a potential ransomware issue in a COVID hotspot in a place that was being menaced by, by wildfires. And so it's just, yeah. you know, hazard on top of hazard on top of hazard. And we've seen issues where, uh, you know, ransomware uh, attacks have forced overflows to other hospitals, creating essentially um, denial of care issues at, at, in an entire region. And so that, the, the ability of that kind of massively distributed, simultaneous denial of care is, is my nightmare. Yeah. Well, that's pretty nightmare. <laughs> okay, we're going to go to questions now. <laughs> right here in the back. And then we'll come up to the front. Please uh, say your, uh, your name and if it's relevant, you want to, your affiliation. Sure. Um, I'm Lauren Walters. What I'm curious that I didn't hear about was uh, the, the application of this issue to EMRs, uh, electronic medical records, mm-hmm. and the vulnerability that they have, whether uh, as they're maybe increasing vulnerability as, as the integration of various records or interoperability between various systems uh, is being considered good news for the patient, but more vulnerable. And uh, hospital at home issues where people are communicating um, via the EMR. Thank you. 
Let's see. I could try taking this one. But. I, I, so part of the reason I think you, you didn't hear us mention that is um, I work for the FDA. We don't have jurisdiction over electronic medical records. Uh, we do work with the, the agency within HHS that does. Um, but we, we do see that issue of there are devices that pull information directly from, from the medical records, and so we need the, the, the integrity of those records to be you know, safe, effective, so that what comes into the device is um, we're working on it. it. It is something that's just outside of our immediate jurisdiction. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I got started by deploying paperless record medical record systems in the, the early 1990s in hospitals. And so I, uh, I appreciate the EMR question because it, I, I think of it as like water. It's, it's sort of a fundam- it's become a fundamental ingredient to everything in healthcare, And you can have sort of, you know, different kinds of water, tainted water, clean water. Uh, and um, uh, but today, right, you think about the integrity property or the availability property uh, I mentioned. You hear about availability all the time where a record system goes down. That's a, that can be both an IT problem as well as an OT. And so for those of you who haven't heard of OT, it's the, the cousin to IT. It stands for operational technology, and it gets to more sort of the essential clinical functions as opposed to the information itself. Uh, and um, certainly the EMRs um, play a key role and, and as Jessica pointed out, though, that it's uh, split up, at least within the U.S. government. Um, and so uh, security problems love interfaces. Secu- <laughs> security problems love complexity. And so if you want to look for where there's going to be a problem, look for where there's a division of responsibility. And, and that's, that's where security problems are going to start to pop out. And so EMRs are definitely going to be uh, involved in that space. Thank you. We have questions. Uh, 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 yes. <laughs> we promised we'd call on you. <coughs> And then we're over here. After. I have lots of questions. Well, I have lots of questions, but I'll start with just one. Thank you. Um, just talking about the intersection with um, healthcare organizations and the systems they have in place. Only about five percent of healthcare organizations' IT budgets are spent on cybersecurity. Um, so it's like we're only as strong as our weakest link. Um, and I think one of my questions is if we have rural hospitals that don't have the funding to be able to build the infrastructure, are there going to be access issues whereby device manufacturers are going to say, okay, you don't have a robust enough system, so we're not going to make this device available through you? And so really my actual question is, should there be more focus on enhancing our cyber infrastructure, more public-private partnerships, so that we are providing these healthcare organizations, which, as you alluded to, are at all levels of sophistication in terms of their cyber hygiene, so that we can really strengthen this infrastructure overall. Well, um, maybe it'd be worth mentioning some of the organizations that um, are trying to fulfill this role. They're not necessarily... So I can't think of any one organization that's going to magically solve the budget issue for the health care delivery organizations. But there is the Health Sector Coordinating Council, uh, among other groups, that bring together uh, information sharing. There's the Health ISAC, Health uh, Information Sharing and Analysis Center, uh, that does more post-market threat sharing, but less so on the pre-market. uh, we're, we're, it's still the early stages. So thank goodness they're sharing information and best practices and they're developing sort of their own sort of versions of guidance documents of, you know, what are some best practices for HDOs and, and uh, um, how do you do procurement? So there's actually, uh, I believe it's a draft document on um, procurement uh, or maybe it's been finalized. It's been finalized, it's been finalized uh, for healthcare delivery organizations on how to encode security requirements before they purchase something from a manufacturer. And that cuts to budget. It doesn't provide budget, but it helps inform that. So um, <laughs> this is a fun one. 
So my, my perspective on this, and, and this comes through with the FDA's perspective on this, where we've, we've pushed to, you have to have the secured by design device before we will give you approval to sell it to, to a rural hospital, to, a, to an urban hospital, whatever it is. We need everybody else to do that too. Because the problem is our, infra- our digital infrastructure is bad. Like it, it, the bad, it's bad. Our software quality is horrible. Um, it is vulnerability ridden. And because there are very few consequences to having a vulnerability in a software device, even if that software, piece of software, is keeping someone alive, there's very little responsibility taken uh, in a lot of cases for actually designing software that can stand up to modern cybersecurity threats, to can, can stand up to modern usage in an environment. And so for a lot of these rural hospitals, and, and this, this is going to be an issue that we see for years and years and years, um, we need the building blocks of what their, what their infrastructure, the things that they're just going to purchase out of the box. We need the out-of-the-box solutions to actually be worth their, the money that they're being spent on them. So that by the time that they assemble all of those things into a whole, you have something that is an approaching a secure or a securable system. And we just don't have that right now. And so I, I think there are going to be steps that are taken. I've actually spent the last two years um, working with a group on addressing sort of this legacy technology issue. Uh, it's going to take a combination of improved budget. The budget's going to have to come from somewhere else. I don't know where. Um, but it's also going to take a lot of organizations like FDA, a lot of agencies like FDA, essentially recognizing that what we are doing and the way that we are approaching designing digital systems is not sustainable. Not with the... Um, not with the people's lives that we're, that we're putting at risk by, by not doing something different. Sounds like an opportunity for national standard setting and an opportunity for <laughs> we should be making a better case that cybersecurity should be part of critical, critical infrastructure funding. That's a, that's a much bigger conversation, <laughs> but yes, okay, over here. Uh, John Stanford uh, here from Life Science, sort of venture capital. So the entrepreneur and innovative perspective is pretty intriguing to me. Are there any classes of devices, if you're going to go with the premise that anything that's going to connect is no longer going to be 100% secure, and you may disagree with that premise, um, but is there a class of devices, if someone wants to hack my Fitbit and know my blood pressure, sort of be my guest. I don't think there's huge consequence to me for that. But if my pacemaker's hacked and turned off and I die, that's pretty consequential. So is there a class of devices that you would say to the entrepreneur class and the the inventor, hey, under no circumstances with the health care issue you're trying to solve with your device, should you be connecting to the internet? Is the risk that grave that there are devices that under no circumstances should be connected? Hmm. So, so um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to say. One of the things that we talk about at FDA is, is at the same time that we're very cybersecurity focused within our team, we can't lose sight of the benefits that these devices provide. And so, and, and then the other thing that I would offer, because we've seen this in, in other situations, is that people will design a device and they'll, they'll air gap it. They'll say, essentially, this thing cannot connect to the Internet. It probably can if somebody tries hard enough. Um, and so, especially given the trajectory of connect everything all the time, I don't know that I would steer folks towards saying assume device non-connectivity or use non-connectivity as, as a risk management measure. I think what I would go back to is, is some of what Kevin has talked about, is if you know your device, it could be life-sustaining, 
life-preserving, that the absence of it could cause serious harm, you have to design for that. And if, it, if, the, and if you decide, if the design consideration is then this shouldn't be connected to the internet, it's an option. Um, but I, I think it's much more that thoughtful design of if a consequence occurs from this, you know, my design needs to be able to, to be resilient to that. And maybe I'll just follow up with, you know, uh, internet isn't, you can't characterize it as 100% risk. There are benefits to internet yeah, connectivity. Exactly. <laughs> so I'll just use the pacemaker example. Uh, if you discover an arrhythmia uh, in near real time, as opposed to waiting for your, you know, whatever, one-year checkup, that's a huge potential increase in safety. Of course, if you just connected to the internet with no safeguards in place, you, you create a whole bunch of other risks. And so th- this is why, uh, again, we're, we're talking about risk management. And um, it's, it's not to me whether you connect to the internet, but it's whether you treat it as an... Um, you, can, you can build a trustworthy system out of untrustworthy components, is, is basically what the engineering principles are. And so it's okay to involve internet connectivity if you don't, as long as you don't treat it as some kind of magic security solution. It's not. Um, just treat it as what it is. You know, um, it's, you can use it, but don't trust it. Uh, you need a way to verify it. You need to think in your risk management. Well, what if this internet doesn't become available? Does my device still function? Um, it better still function. Um, but uh, you know, maybe it's okay if your doctor doesn't have your um, EKG right on the spot uh, if the internet goes down for an hour. Um, but, but that device should still be pacing uh, your heart. Okay, I think we have time for maybe one more question. I think this may end up being a quick question. My name's Eleanor Floyd, and I'm not going to share my affiliation because my personal and professional opinions about this are pretty divided. <laughs> um, I am the personal user of a non-FDA cleared device that is only possible because the protocol upon which the device is not secure. And so I think about the benefits of unsecured technology as they apply to innovation and homebrew and DIY technologies. I assume I know what your opinion is on the risks, the balance of the risks and benefits there, but I'm curious to hear the details. So um, I, I, think I, I think I actually know exactly what device you're talking about. <laughs> you, uh, can, I'm not going to say, and I think she's not going to say, but... Um, d- I can say it. Do, 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 do some examples of <laughs> the kinds of devices that might... But just to give some context to the question. Sure. So, so there, there are devices who, because of vulnerabilities, um, the, folks have, have found ways to modify them to an extent to do things that the devices were not designed to do. Um, I, I, you know, and, and so I, I think that's what we're talking about here. Um, and in some cases, they have potential clinical benefits, you know, that where you don't have to see, I, I'm getting outside of my lane here, you don't have to go see your doctor as much. You know, you, it's just additional capability that you wouldn't have had access to. Um, this, this is a complicated question, obviously a very sensitive question, but what I think has to happen the way that, that FDA, the medical device manufacturer, and the patient community have to work together is if that is it, and I know that this is a desire from the patient community, very passionate patient community on this, um, we all need to be working together to find a way to deliver that patient desire, that patient benefit in a way that we think is still safe and effective in a way that accounts for those risks, yet gets the patients the care that they need, the things that are going to make their quality of life better. So I think that's, an, that's a policy evolution that needs to happen so that we can eventually get folks like you 
the device and, and, and the care that you think uh, will, will increase your, your quality of life. I just want to give Kevin an opportunity uh, to answer, and if you can also, if I'm not asking anybody to reveal any comfort, confidential information, but for the purposes of the audience, what kinds of things are we talking about? What, what I'm talking about is an insulin pump for uh, Okay, thank you. Diabetes devices. Okay, oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'll put a positive spin on this, okay. and that, that is, um, so this is all about the question of uh, a patient self-modifying their device to get sort of extra functionality. And what's interesting is some manufacturers are designing their devices in a way such that some parts are accessible to the patient for modification. And if you're able, as a manufacturer, to do that and also be able to control the risks because it's all about risk management, that gets really interesting where you can sort of have the best of both worlds. But, but there is definitely a tension because the more complexity you put into the device or sort of um, optional new features, the harder it is to reason about the safety. Um, but there, there are ways to do it. And so, for instance, there are some functions on a pacemaker uh, that you probably wouldn't want to allow over the Internet, like turning it off. Um, but you know what? Um, sending the data encrypted upstream to your provider um, or, or sending it to the patient, um, uh, that's, that's not the same kind of risk. And so you might think about these as risk categories that are very different. So um, I'm, I'm just, uh, it's interesting that it, this is a very brave new world of manufacturers even thinking about opening up their interfaces. Yeah, great. But. That is unfortunately all the time we have, but um, Jessica and Kevin, thank you so much and thank you for your thoughtful questions. Jessica Wilkerson is Senior Cyber Policy Advisor with the All Hazards Readiness Response and Cybersecurity Team in the Center for Devices and Radiological Health within the Food and Drug Administration. In that role, she develops policy related to the safety and efficacy of connected medical devices. Previously, she was Cybersecurity Research Director for the Linux Foundation. Kevin Fu is Associate Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at the University of Michigan. He formerly served as the Acting Director of Medical Device Cybersecurity at the FDA's Center for Devices and Radiological Health. Fu is known for security research to defend against vulnerabilities in pacemakers and defibrillators. His research led to improvements at medical device manufacturers, global regulators, and international healthcare safety standards bodies. Vivian Schiller has led Aspen Digital at the Aspen Institute since 2020. Previously, she held executive positions at some of the most respected media organizations in the world, including NPR, NBC, and the New York Times. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go wherever you're listening. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Health Team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.